And Cheryl, where are we? Where are we now? Well, I live in Philadelphia now, but I'm from Ohio originally, Columbus, Ohio, as a matter of fact. But I moved here quite a while ago, and um, partly because of the Ritchie family. I was already living in the area, working at Glassboro State College, which is now Rowan University, when I started going to an acting school and met Cassandra and Gwendolyn, our other original member. But then I moved back to Cleveland and then back to Philly. And I've been in Philadelphia ever since. All right. And Renee, of course, you're another Philly girl. Go ahead. Yes, I was born and raised right in West Philadelphia. Born and raised. <laughs> Just like Fresh Prince. <laughs> and um, went to school all, all the way through school. And then... Uh, I left the nest and went to college in Westchester University, which is really only 45, oh, a good 45-minute ride outside of Philly, of Philly. All right. So then I'm going to, this is the first question everybody knows that I ask this every show I do. It's like, you know, on the walk of life as little young ladies coming up, where does music find you? How does it all begin? You know, because we know, we know the success is later, but how do we, hone these voices where does this all begin so i'll let cassandra take the lead she'll take lead number one go ahead okay yeah well for me music was always a part of my family you know my grandfather played the guitar people in my family liked to sing and whenever there were gatherings there would always be music radio you know just always musical um inclinations within the family so there was a, a natural appreciation. Then, when I got a little bit older, I was allowed to go to the Uptown Theater in Philadelphia and saw all the wonderful, marvelous, fantastic groups that came through. And as a result, I appreciated not only the music, but the live presentation, the show, the showmanship. You know, it was live, all the way live. And I really got to appreciate what people brought to their craft. Um, and then in junior high school, I began singing in girls chorus and the Glee Club and then in a neighborhood group. And from the neighborhood group, everything evolved until we got into the Ritchie family. But music was always there. All right. Cheryl, session number two, door number two, Miss Thing. Go ahead. <laughs> OK, well, I got started as a young child. Um, my second mother put me in a choir at our church, St. Paul AME. It was called the We Wisdom Choir. And I sang with them as a little kid. And I think it was about four when I, was, I joined that choir. And then I started doing music at school, um, in elementary school. And my mother put me in piano lessons. And I started taking voice lessons when I was in high school. And I joined a senior choir as a freshman. They let me come in as a freshman in the senior choir. I was singing a whole lot of ensembles and groups and was in plays and musicals in school. And then I just kind of went about my way doing other things until I joined the Philadelphia School of Performing Arts in Philadelphia. Um, and that's where I met Cassandra and Gwendolyn. And they asked me if I would sing background vocals with them. So we had one rehearsal or two. I can't remember, Cassandra. Was it one? And Jacques Morali came into town and got us started. 
because he knew Cassandra from a, a previous engagement. Oh, we'll get to that in a minute, Cassandra. You'll explain that clearly. <laughs> and Renee, door number three. Go ahead. Well, let's see. Um, I started singing around three years old, believe it or not, um, at my mother's, uh, what she called weekend parties. You know, the weekend parties? Mm -hmm. They have all the family, people would come over. She would be cooking all kinds of food and they'd have drinks and what have you. And I'd take a microphone, which was a, usually a shoehorn or a clothespin and get up on the step and sing. Our day will come. I've got two lovers. Those, all those nice oldies. And then as we, as I moved up in age, I just, music was always just a part of me. It's the lady said I was in the choirs as well and very musically inclined at, at, in my uh, school. And I went to parochial school, but they had a nun that taught, taught the club and what have you. And we, we had a beautiful choir. And then I was in the orchestra, played the violin through high school and um, continued until I decided mm, to go on the road with Sister Sledge, as a matter of fact, because I grew up with them. They on the block and uh, went all around the country with them. Didn't sing, but I did do some choreography, gave, did little steps. And then when I came back home, I decided to go into teaching. So I put my music on the back burner until I met these ladies. We'll get to that. We'll get to that in a moment, how you came along. Yeah. Bye. So, um, my introduction to music was um, not the same as I think Cassandra had a lot of rock and roll and R&B stuff in her background. I had Tennessee Ernie Ford and Sinatra and Papoon and Doris Day and Marianne Anderson. Those were the kinds of things that were playing at my house until I started babysitting for the lady next door and she had a Sarah Vaughn album. And I love that album. I played it so much, she finally gave it to me <laughs> because I was wearing it out. Um, but then I got introduced to Gloria Lynn. When I was a kid, I, I uh, listened to Johnny Mathis. I started listening to Jimi Hendrix and George Benson. So I started becoming um, influenced by a lot of different artists, but it was an eclectic mix of artists like Aretha and Dionne Warwick and Stevie Wonder, Chicago, Led Zeppelin. I saw you had a Led Zeppelin t-shirt on the other day on one of your programs. Um, as opposed to um, doing what Cassandra did by performing all that music that was R&B. So when you say I had Led Zeppelin, the reason why I had rock and roll on me, I'm really a disco baby. But my wife was the one who introduced me to rock music. And I'm classically trained as a pianist. So I can understand what you're talking when you're saying about the backgrounds. And that's important for a lot of people because we get a lot of producer people watching the show. And they always like to know the musical backgrounds of everyone that's stepping into this. Especially when disco started, there was nothing like it before except the Motown sound. So a lot of people were really influenced more by Motown than anything. Or James Brown. Mm -hmm. That funk sound or, or Motown. That was the sound on the radio or wherever you went, basically. 
He went to a show. Yeah, like, you saw about the Uptown Theater, Cassandra. Yes. Earl Young said to me he remembers seeing Motown people at the at the Uptown Theater. A lot of Motown shows in the late in the mid sixties there. All of the Motown artists came through the Uptown. All of them. Uh, the Four Tops, the Temptations, the Supremes, Martha and the Vandellas, Junior Walker and the All Stars, the Velvetts. Um, all of them, they came through, and they were all good. They used to have the uh, Motown, the Motortown Review, right. and it would be an all-Motown um, show. And, um, you know, they came through individually, and they came through collectively, and it was always all good. Trust me on that. And, uh, of course, you know, at the Uptown, you had your James Browns, and you had um, uh, all kinds of comedians, you know, Red Fox, and uh, Flip Wilson. So they all came through the Uptown. And as a result, you know, they were big influencers uh, in terms of what I envisioned once I started singing with a group, what I envisioned that a group could be. Because what I wanted to do was incorporate all those different things that those people brought, that energy, you know, uh, with Gladys Knight and the Pips, they brought like a, a precision to their movement. James Brown brought the excitement. Tina Turner brought the excitement. So as a group, going back down to the Honey and the Bee days, we wanted to incorporate all of that, but we did not want to copy anybody. Always wanted to be original because who we admired, each of them in their own right, were original. So we wanted to... to uh, see what made them good, what made them outstanding. And from that, we wanted to incorporate those characteristics and put our own flavor to it. So when you say honey to the bee, honey in the bees, honey in the bees, uh, should I say honey, excuse me, honey in the bees. Yeah. What years were those and what was, who was behind that? What, what was the, the whole thing with that? Okay. Well, it was a, a neighborhood group. You know, Gwendolyn and I, we went to junior high school, elementary and junior high school together. And uh, there were some neighborhood girls that had a group called a Superior X. And they asked Gwen and myself to join, and we did. And uh, after a while, we met Nadine Felder, who was honey. She had an opportunity to uh, um, audition with Jimmy Bishop, who was a radio, popular radio DJ in Philadelphia. And uh, he gave a lot of the shows at the Uptown along with Georgie Woods. And what happened, he did not want a single female artist. He wanted a group. So since Nadine knew that we sang, she asked if we wanted to all hook up with her, you know, to um, come together and audition for Jimmy Bishop since he was looking for a girl group. So that's what we did. We practiced and we went to him and we passed the audition. And he named us Honey and the Bees. So that's how that came together. And uh, as a result, we began to play the Uptown. And we had the opportunity to play the Apollo Theater. We had the opportunity to travel with James Brown. So it was quite an adventure. It was a lot, a lot of fun. And it was a great learning experience for us and put us on the path to uh, actually be ready when the Ritchie family opportunity came along. So was it Honey? Okay, so I've spoken to other um R&B artists and there was a thing called the Chitlin circuit as in the beginning as we all know were you were you right away taken from you went from a, a group that was studio oriented and went right into the uptown theater or did you have to work your way up with with Gwendolyn no well 
it kind of happened by accident. We were doing kind of the local chitlin circuit, you know, and really what we were doing, we were rehearsing, we were honing our skills. Barbara Mason was appearing on a show at the Uptown. It was a 10-day show. And she ended up losing her voice. But because Jimmy Bishop knew that we were ready, we filled in the last five days for her. And that's how we got our opportunity to play the Uptown. And the audience liked us. And then we ended up coming back over and over again playing the Uptown. And that's why, where other opportunities came in as well, you know, including um, being able to go on the road with James Brown and working with Jerry Butler. You know, we were on the road with him for a while and uh, it was just one thing after another. Now, initially with Honey and the Bees, we did do a lot of the smaller clubs and venues, but it was a good experience for us. You know, we did Buffalo, New York. We did uh, Boston, Massachusetts, uh, New, New Haven, Connecticut, you know, so. Cassandra, can I interrupt you? Yes. So Gwendolyn Wesley, can you tell people who that was and who she met and what was, you know, who she is? Yeah, that's a that's a beautiful story. First of all, she's my very best friend in the whole wide world. Aww. And she kind of taught me harmony because she already sang before I did, like in elementary school. And when we would walk to school together, we would um, harmonize. And I always credit her for teaching me harmony. She tells me, but you always stand on your note. So I'm like, okay. So what happened was after Honey and the Bees had the opportunity to go on the road with James Brown, which included, of course, Gwendolyn, we met Fred Wesley and all the other JBs, Maceo Parker, Cush, uh, Clyde Stubblefield, um, Jabbo, all of the guys. And they're all greats in their own right. Every one of those names you name are like peak name, big names. Every one of them. <laughs> they were legends, you know. Yeah, they legends were... of legends right there. Each one of them. And when he got Fred, you know, it was a connection that just, you know, took off. And, uh, you know, after a while they married, and they're still married. They had two sons and living in South Carolina. So, yeah, that was Gwen's... Um, that was her hookup with Fred. And All right. So in love. That's a wild fact. Cause see, I didn't even, I've always wondered who, who was the one next to you, you know, at the time in the beginning of this, because how long was she? Okay. So before we get to that part, so you guys go from there, where does Jocks Morale and you start this Richie family saga? Or is there an in-between part before that? Well, there was a continuation because there was the honey and the bee part. And at one point, honey decided that she did not want to do R and B music anymore. So, you know, there was like a little lull at one point. Um, she and I had the opportunity to go to New York and do background on a record for Jacques Morali. He was in from Paris and that was our first time meeting him. And he liked what we did. And he said if he ever started a girl group that he would, um, you know, let us know or he'd want us to be a part of it. And we didn't really think that much of it. You know, we didn't know him that well or what his musical tastes were, his ideas or just what his influence was or would be. Um, but as it ended up, he did call. He called Honey. And Honey said, you know, I'm not singing R&B music anymore because she decided she wanted to be totally involved in church music only. 
And she, you know, called me and said, hey, remember the guy we did the background work for? Yeah, yeah, I remember. Well, he called and he's interested in having um, uh, somebody come and perform, you know, and and be a group uh, called the Richie family. And it was like, what? You know, so all in all, Gwendolyn and myself, you know, we were still in close proximity. By this time, I was in the drama school. I knew that Cheryl could sing. And we had asked her about singing with us to do some background studio work because we thought that's all that we would do. Well, that's the question I wanted to ask before you go further. Yep. You, before you even were asked, you went to New York to record. Do you, or was it Philly? It was in New York. Okay. Just me and uh, um, Gwendolyn, honey, right? Honey. And it was honey that did the background session that uh, where we met Jacques Morali. Do you remember the song that you recorded? No, I don't. But I remember that the producer, one of the producers was Patrick Adams. And I believe... Where is he? Put Patrick Adams on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't think even Patrick quite remembers because I tried to jog his memory about when we first met. But it was so long ago, I don't think he really remembered us. I mean, we were just two girls that did background on a song that he worked on many years ago. But, yeah, that's... I don't remember the artist. I believe it was... a. Um, um, a French artist, but I can't be sure about that. It's been so long. Okay. So then he, again, he says to you, if I decide to ever make a group, I like to work with you ladies. Yes. So the phone call comes when, when this is, what's the real behind the scenes? What happens there? About two years later, it was when the phone call came. And by that time we'd had about two or three rehearsals with Cheryl and the sound was coming along really nicely. So we went down, they wanted to hear us sing. And actually Brazil had been recorded by three studio girls, okay? And he wanted us to audition and we auditioned by singing Brazil. And we sounded exactly like the three um, studio girls. So by the time we got into the studio and did Best Disco in Town, there's a portion of it where we're singing Brazil as a part of that medley and we're singing it, you know, it's not their voices. It's our voices. That's doing all of that on the best disco in town record. Was it the Sigma sweethearts? That sweethearts, uh, sweethearts of Sigma, Sigma sweethearts of Sigma sound. Thank you, Cheryl. You're welcome. Wrong. No, you're right. <laughs> so then, See, this is where we didn't realize because nobody ever said on the record they saw the picture and thought it was all you doing it from day one. Because wow. first, the first album, Brazil, wasn't really a group. It was more of a concept album and they used background girls to do the, the vocals on it. But when they decided after Brazil was such a big hit, they really needed real people to be the Richie family. That's where we came in and we did our Arabian Nights with Best Disco and, you know, all those uh, tunes, you know, Baby I'm on Fire and um, some of the other tunes that I'm having difficulty thinking of, but you know what I mean? Istanbul, not Constantinople. <laughs> wow. Because it had pictures of anyone. It had drawings or painting kind of pictures on it. Right. So immediately when the next album comes out and we see the three of you 
or exactly. it's like, oh wow, these beautiful women, because gorgeous women. Thank you. And the way they dressed you up with all those beautiful outfits and all that stuff. There was some work that was some money spent and some time. Somebody took the time to put it together. <laughs> they had money, big time. Who was behind it? Jacques Morali and Henri Bellalo. And was their thought, right? They had this idea to create the studio because they also did the village people, which is not too far and much later. They, Our brother group. The brother group, right? The brother group. Brother group. Yeah, the or, or the other group. Brother or other, right. Our brother group. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so now you guys are rehearsing, getting it right. You go to Philly or New York to do this rehearsal thing, to, to um audition for this. What happens there? We auditioned in Philly, but our rehearsals thereafter were in New York. We would go up for the entire week and then we'd come home on the weekends. By that time, they had hired a choreographer for us and they were preparing us to go out and do live shows. Cheryl, take over. Go ahead, Cheryl. She's like, take over. Cheryl, take over. Um, hmm. <laughs> I had to come back and quit my job. Actually, I came back and took a leave of absence from my job because I wasn't sure this thing was going to work out. So... Um, what were you, what were you doing? What were you doing at the time? What what type I was of work? Director of housing at Glassboro State College, which is now Rowan University, and they considered me their dean of students. Um, I liked my job, but I also love singing. I thought though that I was going to be singing and coming home every night because we were going to be background vocalists. So when they first brought the idea to us, I told them no, because I wanted to come home. So they said, why don't you just do with us, audition with us, and then when you're finished, uh, if we get the gig, then we'll find somebody else. I said, okay, I can do that. But once I started, it just kind of takes over your life and you just start loving it because you're doing something that doesn't seem like work. So um, I came home from New York and told my boss, that I needed a leave of absence because I had recorded an album over the weekend. And he was like shocked <laughs> and didn't believe it. And so they gave me the leave of absence and I went out. But within six months, I knew that I didn't want to go back to my old job. I loved what I was doing. So I quit so they could hire somebody new. So um, we did one, one little story about when we went up there to do uh, the pictures and everything. We didn't have any luggage with us because we didn't plan on staying over. But everything took so long that they had to put us in a hotel. So they take us to the hotel and we have no luggage. And there's these two white guys from France that are trying to book us into a hotel. And the hotel in New York didn't take kindly to that. They thought we were, I think they thought we were hookers. And then we were bringing our guys there. <laughs> we had no way to take the makeup off. No way to change any clothes or anything. So that was kind of our introduction. Oh, really? Because you were all dolled up for the photos. Oh, my God. Face beat down, hair a certain kind of way. Yeah. And then we go to a hotel with no luggage and two white guys trying to book us in. Please, so. please. We need a room for the night for the girls. <laughs> no way. They got us in, but it took a little talking because they were going to say no to us. 
So th now give us the idea now. You girls never had anything like this before, like this type of level of professionalism, I guess, or anything that, like you said, you worked a regular, both of you both working regular jobs, even though you had honey, you were working with honey at the time, you were moving into it. This is like- Sandra was still singing. She was still going out and doing things. I stopped because I started working. I had my degrees and I had a job and I was working my job. Um, when I was in college, I thought I was going to be an opera singer. So then I took German and realized I was not going to be an opera singer because I didn't like trying to learn German. So um, when, when I met them, I wasn't doing any singing other than in the drama group, the things that we were doing within the drama group that we were in. I wasn't singing in any choirs or anything else because there was, I had no outlet in Glassboro, New Jersey. So this was my first time going different places and seeing Cassandra and, and, and Gwendolyn with producers and the way that they behaved uh, struck me as really odd because I wasn't used to people putting on the face, putting on the act for the people that they were. I just was like, who are these women? You know, cause I, <laughs> I did, I'd never seen them act like that before. And there they were like, <laughs> and I'm standing back like, whoa, what's going on here? So right. it took me a longer time to, to acclimate myself to what was going on in the, in this, in this world than it took them because they'd already done it before. I had not. Right, you're stepping in from a regular situation, and now, boom, you're going into like full-on commercial status record, instantaneous. You're now going to start traveling the United States and the world, pretty much. Yeah. I'm in gonna world. now. Let's talk about what year this was, so we have a timeline, so people know. Um. It was like 70, when we recorded uh, the Arabian Nights album, I think that might have been 75, and by the time it was out and really took off, and really doing stuff was in 76. Mm -hmm. And we didn't know when we did uh, Arabian Nights whether it was gonna be a hit or whether it was just gonna be a dud, but it ended up being not only a hit, but an international hit, and we really didn't understand the magnitude of that and what it would mean. But all of a sudden, you know, instead of playing like um, New York and New Jersey and Connecticut and Massachusetts, we were playing Austria, Paris, Brussels, um, Australia, uh, South America, the Philippines. It was like, oh my God, you know, how world that we were thrust into and it was very very exciting well also because even though you picked up from that album and you were the voices you still had all the fame now going from brazil album right and i believe that um the arabian nights was even a bigger uh chart song charted song than uh brazil but nevertheless Brazil started everything. Right, the, 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 basically the door opener. Right, plus the door opener. And not being into disco, I didn't realize how big uh, Brazil was, but it was nominated for a Grammy. And all of a sudden, we were thrust into the world of this new genre, disco. And um, we were probably one of the first female groups to actually be called or known as a disco group. 
And, you know, that's that's how we really got into the world of disco through Jacques and Henri. It was what was really big and doing well, trending in Europe. And they uh, got this American group to be into it. And we just totally embraced it. Yeah, because I'm, I'm trying to figure out the time. Like you said, it was two years prior that you met Jacques. So that must have been 73 then. You must have met him. Well, probably that sounds about right. Yeah. Jesus. Wow. Yeah. A lifetime ago. That's exactly right. I was going to say, for most people, that's mo a lot of people watching the show are not even that old. <laughs> well, let me tell you, um, from what I understand, and some, some, uh, doing some research, the Ritchie family was actually the very first female disco group in the United States. There was one in Europe, and I'm not remembering their name right off the top of my head, but I think it was three of them. But at any rate, the Ritchie family was, in fact, the first female disco group in the United States. Didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, I was going to say, because the only thing I can think of as far as a female voice, two female voices that stand through is Gloria Gaynor and Donna Summer around yeah. 74, 75. And Vicki right? Sue Robinson. And Vicki Sue, Sue Robinson, right. May she rest in peace as well. Um, mm -hmm. Wow. That's crazy. Because I'm trying to think, was there any real girl groups? There was. But in Europe. Yeah, you mean girl group, girl group? She had the Supremes. She had LaBelle. There were I other groups. Know that. Not, not disco. groups. No, not, not for disco. LaBelle would be known as more R&B than disco. Right. Disco, followed by the Richie family, I would guess it would be Sister Sledge came after them. You know what I mean? Other, But, but actually, no. The, the Richie family was the actual disco group, female group. And Cheryl and Cassandra, neither one of you can remember the group from Europe that was out. I think they were out before the Richie family. I don't. And they were with blonde hair. And I really wasn't aware of this. Oh, fly, fly, Robin, fly. Yes. Who were they? Silver <laughs> Convention. Silver <laughs> Convention. That's right. There you go. That okay. was the group. Yeah, but that's right. another manufactured group. That's not even the real singers, from what I understand. That was three women put in front with a yeah. studio thing behind yeah. them. In Europe, though. It was Europe. So the European side. Yep. So I think that's something to be pretty, you know. That's Take a bow, ladies. Together. Take a bow. <laughs> <laughs> and still be here to say it with pride. Absolutely. And glee. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, it was fun, and we got to travel in style. I mean, Jacques and Henri did not play when it came to lavishness of where we stayed, what our costumes looked like, where we would be performing. Um, we got to really see the world in first class style. I mean, it was a wonderful thing. How long? We're so young. How long did that last, that level of status for this group? For us? For us. Yeah, well, I mean, for you, I mean. About four years, Cassandra? About three, three and a half, maybe. Three and a half to four, yeah. And sirs, we had a hairdresser, that, a hairdresser, hairstylist that traveled with us. Which was wonderful. Um, yeah. 
and go swimming and still look good that night. Oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> you had a manager um, and Lee, her name was Lee, that did our hair. She doubled as a valet, so she helped with the clothes as well. So dancers and we had a band that traveled with us. Um, Take us on. Okay, so you know one of the biggest records for me. I remember the best disco in town. It's like the hottest track. We always always remember that record. Like everybody goes, the best disco in town. Right? Great song. Thank you. Thank Concept you. conceptually was it something that you came to them with, or was it something that they had? How did that all work with them? What was that like dealing with them, them running the show, the management, production-wise? You you know, break it down for us. That was problematic because as, as exciting as it was and as privileged as we felt, it became... Um, to a point, it came to a point that we felt like glorified robots because the concept for every album was what Jacques came up with. They would go into the studio and they would record the music. And until I think we did our last music, which was African Queens, they really didn't um, make sure that the keys were right for us. You know, we, we worked through it, though. I mean, you know, we, we managed. But we thought like, wow, this song should be in a different key. And we had no say about any of the music. And personally, for me, coming from an R&B background, I wasn't in love all the time with the music. I grew to love it, but I felt like I wanted a little more R&B incorporated into the sound. But that was not to be. And as a result, I think that's what put us on a road with Jacques. Um, so that the relationship began to break down because he wanted glorified robots. He wanted to tell us how we should wear our hair on and off stage and everything that we could and could not wear. You know, we couldn't pick out our own costumes. We liked the ones that he picked out, but we really had no say. So it got to be a little bit contentious. And, you know, as I said, the relationship began to break down and there were arguments and, things that were said that were unkind and you know then you're not speaking and the relationship just uh broke down over over the three years was it just that he was a control freak would you say oh, yeah. i think so that's that's how i interpreted it you know <laughs> yeah. our ideas were so bad but they just weren't entertained or even given a second thought you know he says, you know, I am this, I am that, I know how this should be. And it just made us feel like we were just glorified robots. <laughs> he wanted no input. But originally it seemed like he wanted a group that was similar to LaBelle because that's how we look kind of on that album cover. Yeah. Uh, the night. But then he started also liking the Supremes. So it was like gowns and furs. And, you know, so it was like... He wanted like a composite of those two groups in a sense, I thought. Um, but it was what it was and we endured it and we lived and then we ended up not being there for a while. All right. We'll get to that in a minute. Mm -hmm. We'll get to that in a minute. So the songs were already pre-presented. They were there. You just went in and they said, sing this. 
Oh, they handed you the sheets? They just handed you the chart sheets that go in? No, they would play the music and say, sing this. Sheet music, no. And I could read, but they didn't know. They weren't interested in that. It was sing this. So we would sing it. And then, can you harmonize with that? Yeah, sure. So we would harmonize. And we would do different things. But as Cassandra said, it was more like um, we were robots. But we weren't robots because we actually had minds and had some ideas that we wanted to share, even if he shot them down. But he would, he didn't want to hear anything but what he what was about him. That was it. Oh, really? It was been, if he could have been a girl and been in the group, he would have been in that group. I'm telling you, because he really everything he had for us to do, I'm sure he wished he could have done it himself. But he couldn't because he was a guy. <laughs> I never got to meet Jocks. I never got to meet him, but I heard the stories. Jock was an interesting person. He was definitely an interesting person. He had good points and bad points. Sometimes you loved him. Sometimes you were like, oh my God, can I put up another minute with this guy? And he was very outspoken about our personal lives as well as our professional lives. Oh, really? It was like that, huh? Mm. Oh, really? Like you, you girls were Stepford wives, basically. You do as I say and don't do as what I tell you. You do it this way, right? Pretty much, pretty much. You know, it's like if we wanted to date people, uh, the, the thing is with Jacques, it was funny because we didn't date on the road as much as he thought that we should have since we had the opportunity. You know, <laughs> girls. You know, these guys, these are so, they are so beautiful. Why don't you go out with them, you know? So his idea of what we should be doing was different from our ideas of what we should be doing and how we should be doing it. Jacques was very free with his love. And um, I guess he thought that we should be that way too. And I guess it was during that time that was commonplace. But we didn't always feel like, you know, that's the route that we wanted to go. We were more interested in really the music and some serious shopping. <laughs> actually, the only one of us that was actually free-free for all this dating that he wanted us to do was Cassandra. Because Gwendolyn had Fred. And I was married at the time to someone that was living in Cleveland. So the only person that could have had that love life that he wanted somebody to have would have been Cassandra. And she wasn't interested. To her credit, by the way. Good for you, Cassandra. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think I dated one guy. Uh, I remember this guy that I can't remember his name, but he was from Turkey. And he was interesting, and we went out and we had dinner. But the problem with dating on the road, especially in Europe, I knew that it really couldn't be anything because I couldn't go back and forth to Europe. They weren't going to come to uh, America, and it was going to be limited to what the relationship could be. So I was more interested in having relationships with the boyfriend back home because at least when I got home, they would be there. <laughs> I understand that. I understand that. And in those days, it took a lot longer traveling around the world because it wasn't like it is now. It took yep. a lot longer to prepare to go around the world. There's a lot of work involved to get around the world in those days. Yes. 
but it was freer too. We didn't have to go through all the airport security and craziness that you have to go through now. So that's right. There was yeah. no um, there was no transponders to check you with all your luggage. You just went right to the gates, right from it's like yeah. walk right over, right? Pretty much, yeah. You imagine that? Could you imagine like that now? Can you imagine that you would have nothing except you take your little satchel, you check in, and then walk right to the gate? And you don't have to show up. We didn't have to show up two hours before flight time. You know, it wasn't necessary. No, nothing was necessary then. Just just champagne waiting. You had the piano in, in first class. Yeah. You guys, I mean, he traveled. Did he travel to all the gigs with you, Jocks? Or were you on your own with your staff? At first they did. And then, you know, like for the first year or so. Um, but then they slowed down. They had a road manager for us. So they weren't everywhere. They were just like half the time they were with us. But not like it was in the beginning before they got the road manager. They were there to do everything. And, um, you know, things just changed after a while. So as, as you guys are getting stressed in the group, okay, and not being able to share the ideas, what are you doing as the three years are going on? You're just going on the road, doing the gigs, getting paid, of course, and all that. Are you starting to make a decision, we're going to leave him? Like, was this being discussed, like a coup? Say, I'm going to roll out. No, we thought we could work with him. We thought we could um, work out whatever issues we had, but... They surprised us and hired three new people and told us that we were not going to be working with them anymore. But Sarah, it was a time that Wayne came to the conclusion that she did not oh. want to work with them anymore. Yeah. So she, was, she was sick, though. That was part of the problem. She had asthma that was bothering her on the road, and it was too much. And she didn't want to do it anymore. She had mm -hmm. decided she really didn't want to do it anymore besides having the illness, you know, the asthma, and she just was ready to step off. And I had hoped that she didn't do it because as my best friend and the person that I'd always sang with, I didn't want to see her go, but I knew her health dictated it. And she had a, one small child. When we went on the road to the Ritchie family, her baby was six months old and it was very hard for her being separated from her mm. child. No, I can understand that. That's but Cassandra awesome. and I were going to continue. That was our original intention. Yeah. But it wasn't meant to be. So what happened? What did he do? Wait, stop. Let's ask the question the right way. One day you're on the road. Everything is peaches and cream. What you think? Next minute? You, what'd you do? Go to a session and you were replaced? What happened? Went to meetings. I got called to New York and I knew something was up because we were called to come up to New York to Can't Stop Productions one at a time, not as a group, but one as a, at a time. And when we were called up one at a time, you know, we had our talk with Henri. Jacques wasn't even there and pretty much said that, you know, at the end of this particular contract period, then that was going to be it. They decided that they wanted to go in another direction or something to that effect. And at the time, you know, I felt kind of arrogant, like, okay, so what? Fine. You know, do, do whatever you want to do. I don't care. And I really felt that way, you know, 
But when I look back on it, you know, a few years after that, I really felt like a part of me had been cut off and I didn't have a warning. And I just said to myself, I don't care. I don't care. But in my heart, yes, I did care. And I was never, I never allowed myself to really go there because I knew that it would hurt and I'd miss it. So I decided I'm not going to really do this again, only background work or whatever. But it was, it was a hurt. It was a hurt and it was a big come down. I was called as well. And I had my personal meeting. They asked me to stay, but told me I had to, to lose 20 more pounds. I think I weighed 125 at the time and trained some new girls that they were going to hire. I'm not training anybody and I'm certainly not losing weight. And the third thing they said I had to do was move to New York city. And I was leaving my ex-husband and taking my son with me and moving to Philadelphia area. And I had no intentions of taking my young child who was maybe at that time was about five, I think, and move him to New York city where he would have nothing to do or anything. And then I go off on the road and he gets left in New York city with strangers. So at that point I quit. And that was the first time I ever quit a job without having a job to go to. So <laughs> it's a little shocking. People wrote what this is what I see on my writing. What is it writing? Like what? And we were told by um, Phil Hurt, he said he came into the studio ready to teach us our ne next songs. And there were three new girls sitting there. He was like, huh? These girls. <laughs> so anyway, so we, went off, we went off to our regular lives and we did that for a while. And then Cassandra and I tried to form another group. Um, of course, we couldn't use the name. The Ritchie family. So we named ourselves Kazmajak, Cassandra. We hired a young, uh, got a young woman named Michelle who was with us. And that was the moon. And I, my last name at the time was Jacks, Mason Jacks. So Kazmajak was the name of our group. And we ended up doing the background vocals for John Lennon's last album. Uh, thought we were going to go on tour with him. And then that dude murdered him. 1980. So that That's 1980. Um, so at that point, we just said, oh, well, I guess we're not supposed to do this. And we started going into our regular lives. Um, I started working for the school district of Philadelphia as an administrator. Cassandra had other jobs and things that she was doing. And many years went by. I kept saying to Cassandra, we should sing again. And she was like, no, nah, no, nah, that ship has sailed. I don't feel like doing it. I said, we should. We should really sing again. So one day Cassandra calls me up and she said, I am so sick and tired of looking on YouTube and all these places and seeing these other girls, the new girls, singing, but they're, they're moving their lips and our voices are coming out. And she was getting upset about it. So we decided um, to do something on our own. But here's something people are thinking about at home right now. You know, everybody knows about Beyonce and those big groups of today and everybody's making, you know, Jenny from the block money and all this beautiful stuff. Now, we know those albums went big and they were gold and platinum selling albums that you girls were on. Were you able to share in any of the finances that Jocks and them were earning from the Can't Stop production side besides the actual money that you were going out to perform in those days? 
No. No. No, absolutely not, because the percentage of what we got from our music was very, very small. We were told that we weren't, this is by an attorney, we weren't really in a bargaining position, good bargaining position. And as a result, you know, we were salaried and our expenses were paid. But the percentage that we got from the music was small. But when they let us go and decided to form another group, we didn't hear from them. It was only about, uh, I'm going to say about 10, maybe 11 years ago that we finally started getting royalties because from them, the organization sound exchange, they got in touch with Cheryl and Cheryl, you can take up, uh, tell this part. <laughs> well, I was still in SAG. I was in after at the time and, um, they located me through. AFTRA. And then I contacted Cassandra and I contacted Gwen and told them that we were being sought after to give them, give us royalties that were due us from sales of records and things from around the world. As far as Can't Stop Productions, they were supposed to be giving us money and they never did until, golly, was it about five or six, ten years ago they started giving us very, very, very small checks. Um, because they claimed that we owed them money for and all those beautiful trips we took in all those hotels we stayed in. And when we finished paying them back for that, then they would give us some money. Hmm. Oh, wow. So you're basically telling me that they were looking for you for the mechanical royalties, the mechanical side, because I, I'm gonna, that's the performance. I'm going to guess you guys, like you said, let me make sure this is clear. You didn't write anything, correct? No, right. we didn't write anything. So you didn't have any in the publishing, but you were going to get it on the mechanical. Correct. Right. And we were supposed to get a certain percentage from the records that we recorded with them, but they were holding that. And, and you would have to pay somebody to come and look at their books. And we didn't have the money to do that. Um, so it just well, had to go on and on. Because with them and like a lot of the labels back in the day, there's an A set of books. It's the B set of books, and then this that you're going to see, which is going to be a C set of books, you know, the mafia books, the Jewish books, and then the C books. There's three different if books. I know that you know had dime, that's the books that we would have gotten to see. The C book. Um, <laughs> we don't owe you a dime book. Here's the <laughs> negative. $1,650,000. you have only paid 60000 of it. We still got another million to go. You know, it's like... Yeah. Holy smoke. I can't believe this. I, I shouldn't say I can't believe it. I can believe this happens because this is the story you hear with all the groups, all the groups. Yes. Yeah. And you know what else? After we found out, you know, that uh, there was money out there, the statute of limitations had set in. And as a result, no lawyer would go and try to go back because too much time had passed. And what we found out is that they only had to go back a certain amount of years. And we did talk to Henri. Henri gave us a, a bump as far as a, a greater percentage, which was much, you know, it was better, but it was still small. And, you know, he went back, I think, um, a few years. But during the time when we made the most money, he didn't go back that far. Of course not. 
we couldn't reap the benefits from then. So, but you know, thank God we still get royalties today and we get royalties from our John Lennon um, music as well. So I'm okay. You know, I'm not bitter. It happened the way that it did, but you move on and I can't uh, let that be, you know, on my chest too heavy because I still enjoy doing the music. And when we do get paid, I feel like it's a blessing at this stage of the game to still be getting paid to do what we love. No, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful attitude, Cassandra. And thank God, you know, as much as we all said disco died, it never died. It never yeah. died. Oh. That's that's a, that's a cliche, that Chicago thing. That it was, was just something. Kill, but it was, did not die. Never died. It just went, it went a little bit, let's put it like this, on pause for a minute. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. for people to reset, because now well, Rock says it. One minute you're you 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 got the biggest hit record, and next minute you're part of that disco thing. Well, we don't want to know you. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, but they took the beats. Yes, they did. <laughs> you took the beats. Damn right. You know you did. <laughs> you took right. those beats. You took those it beats. Kept, it lived through that those beats. It lived on and on and on. It still is. I think that the dance music that we're doing now. Um, is a version of a disco rappers kind of took on some of the things i mean there was influenced other genres of music well you know what i gotta give it to that philly son earl young that yeah. four four beat went all the way yeah, oh, oh lord help us earl young wherever you are if he's watching you know he checks in every time, time. that boy the time mr time machine knocking it down for everybody that's true. We played on all those sessions, yeah. you know. Well, I wanted to ask about the John. See, now I had no idea about the John. I want to know about the John Lennon sessions. That's the next. We're gonna get into the next question because I'm like sitting here going, "You girls are on that too." I want to know which songs you sang on, because I saw the movie with Yoko Ono, the one on Netflix, mm -hmm. and I didn't remember seeing the background sessions. You did the New York sessions, right? Correct. We didn't want to be starstruck, so we didn't ask for autographs. We didn't take any pictures. We yeah. thought we were, he, he was going to take us with us on the road. So we figured. Cassandra yes, said, yes, she, yes, you did. Where are they? We didn't take the pictures, but there were a gazillion pictures taken while we were in the studio. And I want to know where are they. But I, I all of the all the pictures that were taken, they, we, they took so many, and they're somewhere. I'm so talking about us personally. We personally did not take But there were pictures of us taken in the studio, and a number of them. I remember it so clearly. And over the years, I've always wondered, where are those pictures? Now, Cassandra, I saw the sessions that they have the movie of that album before he, he they, and it's on Netflix. They said part of the album was done in England in his house that they built a studio for and the rest was done in, in New York. That's and how many songs did you guys sing on? Do you remember what, what that was? We did Woman and, oh shucks, what's the other one that I love so much? Starting Over and Woman. Starting Over, Starting over and Woman. Well, You're we did on. a couple of songs for Yoko, but I don't think she used us when she did her final. Oh, Christ, you would probably out-sing her. <laughs> After um, she put her vocals down that we do background, they, you know, they kind of giggle about it, but they definitely wanted us on there, and they put us on there. But when the music was released, I guess she overrode whatever it was that they tried to do because they took our vocals off, but we were still on um, Starting Over and Woman. 
And um, when it won for album of the year, it was like, wow. But yeah, that was a great experience because we were awestruck. We were so impressed. John was a really, really, really nice man. He knew how to treat you ladies, right? He treated you right. All He treated you right. Yes, yes. And he watched us we'd be available to go with him on the road. And we said, absolutely. We were so excited. We were going to go on the road with John Lennon. And then... Sirhan Sirhan comes in. <laughs> and we... um. We were told that he had, he told us he was going to autograph some CDs for us or albums for us. We never got them because once he was killed, people swooped in and took everything. So there might be an album out there somewhere that says to Cheryl. This is what I'm saying. Girls, we never knew that, that the Richie family did, did, we had, I'm sitting here like gobsmacked. No, we love you as the Richie family. We're like, yo, you work with John Lennon on the last album? Yeah. As Casma Jack. Yes. As Casma Jack. Casma Jack. Who's the, now, who's, who's the production people behind Casma Jack? Was there songs released? Was there anything that. No, no the only thing we, did, we, we were going to do background vocals. That's what we were getting ourselves ready to do. And then we got hired to do John Lennon's last album. Who introduced you? Who got you into John Lennon's world? What was that? Who? What happened, Cassandra? I can't remember. Cassandra, come on, girl. Get that. Okay. Let's break it down. One of our writers, Bill Hurt, he had a Uh, friend at Columbia uh, Records. Her name was Peggy Cherry. And she knew that John Lennon needed background vocalist. He recommended us. And we were definitely interested. We went to New York and we sang a little bit for him. And we went in. It was me, Cheryl, and Michelle. And like, you know, a combination of our names is how we came up with Casma Jack. And um, that's how we did it. He asked, he said, how do you want your name on the album? Is Casma Jack or your individual names? And I said both. So if you look on that record jacket, you will see Casma Jack. And then you will see our individual names. And um, and let me tell you something. There's people yeah. checking Discogs right now, and they're giving it a big fat wow. Yeah, I swear to God, we're right. They're going, my God. See now, here's again, True House stories. Unbelievable that we're hearing the John Lennon story through disco craziness. I love that. Wow, wow. I want to ask about the greatest gigs. Who cares? I want to hear about all the you know the nitty gritty because nobody reads. Yeah, I never read any of this. It doesn't exist anywhere. None of this exists, Cassandra. I knew nothing of this, and I've and I'm a pretty good avid reader too. I love disco um history. Because mm-hmm. I, I I know the music, been out dancing, DJed many, many years, and I've never read this, nor heard anyone ever say anything about this. This is like first time I'm hearing this going, whoa. Gobsmacked, man. Wow. You got the scoop. <laughs> Impressiveness. And t- so Phil, was it, did you say Bill Hurt or Phil Hurt introduced you? Yeah. So no, Phil Hurt was on Fantasy Records too. He had some big hit records too, I remember. He's a no, wonderful songwriter. He wrote a lot of hit records. For the Spinners, you know, what was it? I'll Be Around. He wrote a lot of, uh, he wrote for the OJs. He wrote for us. Sledge. He wrote for you. Yeah. Wrote for Sister Sledge. Yeah. yeah. I think he did uh, some people. Village People stuff too, didn't he? Yeah. My God. He's the one that told us he went into the studio and expected well, to see Didn't us. he co-write some of the lyrics or things for um, Best Disco? I believe he did. Still yeah. hurt? 
together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he helped arrange and put that together. He was to rehearse with, you know, on the piano to pull all the songs together. So, so you walking in on a Phil Hurd session, you know, Phil's sitting behind a piano. Is he is he staffing out? What's what's he doing? Like when he's doing his thing, you ever witnessed any of that? Especially when he's I, writing for you girls. I don't know if Phil played on the sessions because the musicians recorded separately from us. But when we'd go into the studio to learn the music, we sat down, stood up around with Phil. That's how we learned the music. You mm -hmm. know, uh, he and Jacques had worked some things out. And I guess Jacques made him understand what it was he wanted. And Phil worked with us and we, you know, we gave him what they wanted. Now, let me let me ask you, Cassandra, because now I'm really understanding this. Okay. Was Jacques a hands-on guy or a guy with dreams and with money to say, I want this guy who, because I know he wrote this hit song and, and put together a team. Was that what he, what he was doing? Or was yes. he really musically you know, there. No, he was the money guy and he was the idea guy, but I would not ever underestimate his ideas because they worked. They, yeah, they, they worked with village people, they worked with us. And in as much as we had some problems with Jacques, you know, his attitude and his, uh, uh, just, like, you know, his, his, what do you call it? Just being a little bit too hands on as far as, um, controlling us a little well bit that's another part we know that the controlling part but i'm just talking about you know Creative. there's people there's people that are phenomenal a and r guys then there's guys like clive davis that are lawyers that have a good ear they're not musical people they just got a good ear they know when they hear something they go i'm gonna sign that i'm gonna sign santana i'm gonna go and pick up this jazz group because he just had a good ear you well know? that was pretty much he knew what he wanted he knew what sound he wanted, but he couldn't sing. He couldn't play an instrument, but he no. could tell you what he wanted. And when he heard it, he said, say, that's it. And he was able to direct his energy to get what he wanted. And all these years later, you know, even though we had some problems with Jacques, I can say that the music we did with him stood the test of time. Absolutely. And I can't add at that. No matter how angry and stupid he could have been as a person and do the nonsense he did, but when you talk about the music, the music holds testament. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Now, I know he was flamboyant. Oh, the, yeah. Now, we all know that. Jocks was very, because I knew on the other side, the village people, the village people is 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 it is more so-called as such as as when you put together a gay group, really not gay to the commercial side of it, but in the sense, it was a sexual revolution time. It was the 70s. Things were like we said. You said before, love, sex, music, everything. Lots of it. Lots of it. And a lot of the, a lot of those guys are not here today because of it. Died because of the AIDS and and the that, drugs. Yep. That happened to Jacques. He died of AIDS. Yes, I remember hearing that, and it was in the mid eighties, I think, if I remember right. By the time we heard about it, Jacques had been dead probably for about fifteen years. We didn't we know. We didn't know about it. Much. When I found out, I was shocked. You know, it was like, oh, my God, I had no idea. But, right. yeah, that was what uh, we heard he died of. 15 years. Wow, yeah, you really... Had... We did like Jacques. I mean, he was a likable person. But <laughs> he also was an unlikable person at times. 
know, well, I think it's really hard when you don't have creative freedom. That's is. a challenge. If you're a creative and you're an artist and you're kind of kept, you're kind your hands are kind of tied behind you, you're not able to give you give give out your own creative um influence. That's 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 challenging. Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay. So now paint us the picture on the best gig you ever had at that time. In the, in the time of the high of this whole thing and your world changes. My favorite, although I loved everything we did, um, was when we went to Poland. And we did a show in Poland at the, uh, in Warsaw at the uh, Sopat Festival. That's my favorite because it was long. We got to extend songs out. Um, the crowd was huge. And we were the first group, American group, to go into the Soviet bloc and perform on their Soviet bloc TV. So, I mean, I, that's one of my favorites. Although, like I said, I liked a lot of the other things we did, but that one stood so out. Let me ask the question, being that you were the first American women's group to cross into the Soviet bloc, what was it to get in there? Was it hard? I don't remember it being hard. Do you, Cassandra? I think they had worked out all the details of us getting in and doing whatever we were going to do. I don't remember it being hard or difficult in any way. Um, The people, I think they looked at us, you know, I don't think they saw a lot of black people. I remember this little old lady came up, you know, and she touched my face and she just patted it, you know, and she just looked at me. She was smiling real sweet. She had on this real, real, uh, red lipstick. I, I always remember the little lady, she's a cute little lady, you know, it's an older woman, but she seemed fascinated because I don't think in her lifetime she'd seen a lot of black people. And we were in Warsaw at the time. And, you know, she just patted my face and I was like, oh my goodness. So I felt like, you know, a little connection there. So. That's crazy, right? Because here you are, <laughs> we live in America. We have all melting pot around us and these Russian people are coming up to you, touching you like you're not real, making <laughs> sure that, you know, is she really real? No, cannot be. <laughs> it's why. So, so, for, so that's, again, this is pre-everything. This is the 70s because, you know, rock and roll had its first initial big breakouts, late 60s. You guys are not far behind. When you, see, when you see the film of the, um, the Sopa Festival, the other thing that's interesting to me is that everybody's in suits and they're dressed up and they're just sitting there watching us. Um, they're not jumping up and down like American groups do when the Italians would want to touch you and everything, be all up on the stage with you. Um, these people stayed in their seats and they watched us in their suits and, and dresses and hats and stuff almost looked like they were going to church, but we were performing for them. And then at the end, they were and clap for us and everything. And then we'd do the next songs. And I loved it. Like a golf clap. Cassandra, for you, what was the best one, hon? Best gig ever. I, I cannot pick a particular one. You know, I think the soap pop is definitely up there, but there were so many great discos all over Europe. And everyone that we played was fascinating. They were huge. The, the dance floors were crowded. And they were really elaborate. So 
I would just say the dance clubs that we played um, was really impressive for me. And I think another one that stands out, we played uh, for the uh, King and Queen over in uh, Manila in the Philippines. That was pretty special as well. Like the Philippines too. Mm -hmm. Cheryl, just a yeah. question to you. Ethnicity, are you all, are you all white? Or are you mixed at all? I'm not white at all. I have white folks in my family. Um, but that was an issue when we were on the road. They would, I don't care what language they said it, they'd say two blacks and one white. I could always say, <laughs> excuse me. Um, but, and people in other countries don't understand light skinned people being light skinned people. And there's lots of lights. I came from a long line of light skinned people. And where I lived, there were lots of light skinned people. When I moved to Philadelphia, is where I had to look for them because they were hiding out somewhere. But um, I'm mixed race, but I can say I've been raised African-American as a child and all the way through. I, my church that I went to was the AME church, was the African-American Episcopal The reason why I say that is because when you see the covers, you know, and the pictures, you see, you know, Cassandra, Gwendolyn, and yourself, and you, and you say, okay, and my wife, who's another big fan of your group, okay, she says, well, they're all black. I says, yeah, but when you look at the picture and you don't know, you think the two black singers and one white singer. And see, I don't think I look white, so I have a hard time with that. <laughs> no, I think it's fabulous. It's amazing. No, the whole thing is just, look, when people first met me and they heard me making these records in the beginning, they, everybody thought I was black making black dance music. They thought for sure it was black. They says, you're not black. Just like that. And when I used to go like this. Because people, you know, some people, some people pass. That's where that whole, the passing comes from. I have family members that do that. But I, my, my part of the family did not pass. There you go. Well, you know what? You know, this is why I ask this true house stories. It's not to insult anybody, but people thinking these things. I have the album covers. I've seen the albums and I was always impressed by the beauty of the women. I was like, wow, look how nice everyone looks. Dressed to the hilt. Love the Egyptian look. I love everything. Arabian Nights. I love the whole thing. It was like, what a great concept. Now, one of the songs in African Queen says, three queens, three different shades of love. And that's us. We were three different shades. And even now with Renee, there's three different shades of us and what we are. All right now. All right. Since now we got the best gigs, tell us the dark side. One of the worst experiences that you can remember. On mm -hmm. the, <laughs> the worst. Uh, I think I almost got left one time. I was late getting to the plane. I think I was late getting to the plane. Because um, my ex-husband moved us to, back to Cleveland. Ugh. That's why I said, Ugh, to Cleveland. Um, <laughs> People who are watching from Cleveland, please share I'm this. I'm sorry, Cleveland. <laughs> that experience is there. Flats. I always think of the flats, flats when you think of Cleveland. It's still Ohio, so I still love you. <laughs> but um, I think I missed my plane that day because my ex-husband was real slow in getting me to the plane. And they had closed the door and they refused to reopen it open it up. And um, so I was late getting to the, was it a rehearsal? Were we rehearsing in New York? Sandra, I can't remember. I just remember I was late. And I remember Jacques and Henri were very upset about the whole thing. Um, 
Another time that was bad for me was I left some rings in the bathroom and somebody stole them. But other than that. Oh, that happens. That can happen anywhere. You could be at the casino. I took them off to wash my hands because I'd eaten a burger and it got juice and everything. And I laid them on the sink and heard that voice inside say, you better put those rings back on. I said, oh, I'll do it when I finish. I went to the bathroom. I heard somebody come in. Somebody left. I came out, forgot all about my rings because they weren't there. Went to sit at the, um, at the gate, and all of a sudden, the weight on my hand didn't feel right. I said, my rings. I run back to the place. They held the plane for me that time. Ran back. Rings are gone. So that was the end of that story for those rings. But that's that feeling of your heart going to your stomach, that horrible yeah. feeling. I know that feeling. Yeah. You feel it. They were really nice rings. But anyway. Oh. I kept wishing bad things on the other person that took them. I thought they should throw green ward on the tip of their nose so everyone know they were a thief. But that didn't happen either. Yeah, but they didn't thief them. They probably waited for you to leave and they grabbed them. They'll probably, no, wow. they, they took them while I was in the bathroom. I went to the toilet part oh. and left them on the seat. You know what? I wanted to go back a ways. I remember uh, Lenny asking something about the band. A band? Yes. Um, it was Gypsy Lane, am I right, ladies? Correct. And did they trap? They travel with you guys? They did. Most Who of them. Gypsy Lane. Who? Who was in the band? Do you remember? Nathaniel, um, Larry Davis, uh, Johnny O, Alfonso, Alfonso. Roger Lee, um, guys out of Philly. Most of them are still around, and uh, uh, died. Uh, Russell, Russell Dabney, Russell Dabney uh, is actually playing with Victor Willis's village people. He's gone on the road with them, uh, I guess, because of COVID. You know, nobody's really working like they were. Oh, but yeah. He ended up with when Victor reformed village people. Russell ended up getting a gig and going back with him. But the guys are still out there playing. And Gypsy Lane down in Florida. Oh, yeah? Mm -hmm. So now comes forward now. So the band goes on hiatus <laughs> for a while, you guys. And you come back together after 1980 with John Lennon, you did. What happens after John Lennon? Okay, so basically the helium is taken out of that success balloon again. Yep. Deflate it. What happens now? Where do you girls go? What, what, what goes from there? In school and just, I would say, uh, just ordinary everyday existence, doing what most people do, you know, nine to five, raising a family, uh, going back to school and just, you know, enjoying life. But, you know, I, I looked at the career of an entertainer as something that I had done and would probably never, ever have an opportunity to do it again. And it was okay. You know, in my heart, I would have loved to, but I felt like that was too big of a dream to even dare to think about. And I continue to sing, but with choirs in, in church and do things like that. Um, Fayette Pinkney was um, one of the three degrees, was in the same church I was in, and we were in the same choir together after she came off the road. Um, I got a couple more degrees 
and started working for the school district of Philadelphia as a teacher at one point, because they had laid me off from my administrative job. And then, um, well, and then Cassandra decided she wanted to sing again. Finally, she, <laughs> she, she said to me one day, she called me on the phone. She said, I am so sick of looking and seeing other people moving their lips and our voices are coming out. And I said, uh-huh, okay. She said, we're going to do this again. We're going to do this. I said, okay. <laughs> so then... Um, it was just like that pregnant pause, okay. Like, okay. Yeah, it's like, uh, okay. So then um, we started... We, the two of us started looking for someone else to perform with us because Gwen was out of the question. She had not only decided not to sing that music, but she also had moved out of town to, to South Carolina. So we auditioned a few people and tried them out. None of them worked out too well. That's when we found Michelle that be, ended up being with us in Casma Jack. And then um, we stopped for a while and then we decided to start again. And my friend, one of my friends, who's a mutual friend of all of us, said, oh, I know a, a woman that could sing. Her name is Renee. I can't think of her last name, but it starts with a W. I said, oh, okay. So she said, she's on Facebook. I said, all right. So I go on Facebook and I look for her Renee with a W for her last name. And I found one and I start con contacting her and I'm talking to her and in, in, you know, back and forth and messenger. And then I said, yeah, Vicki uh, suggested that I um, talk to you about her. She said, who's Vicki? I said, huh? So that's when I realized I had the wrong Renee. And so she, I went back to Vicki and I said, uh, this person I'm talking to in New York, she said, oh no, she lives in Philly. Um, and she works for the school district of Philadelphia too. So she gave me her real last name by then. And that's when we contacted Renee and got Renee to come and start singing with us. Um, so I had another Renee in mind for a minute and she could sing. And we even went to see her perform in a, a, a program that came here from New York. But um, she wasn't the right Renee. And the Renee we got is the right Renee for us. There you go. Cassandra just documented. She said, for sure. So now, Renee, the phone call comes to you, girl. And what? Hey. Come on now. Step up. 2011? Um, 2011. Yes. The, the lady, the young lady who I knew. Um, I knew in the school district of Philadelphia, she let me know. She said, Renee, somebody's going to be contacting you um, to ask, you know, if you if you wanted to, to sing in, in a group. And I was like, okay, no problem. Um, and I went to meet the ladies. Now, let me just admit right now, right here and now, I had absolutely no idea what I was getting into. <laughs> I had no idea the group was as big as they were. I thought this was a local singing group that we would just be having some fun. And when I looked and, and researched, I said, oh my God, I was totally blown away by, you know, their, their history and, and their contribution to the industry. And I was just overwhelmed and very happy and proud to be chosen. And, um, We've uh, we've been moving along and, you know, um, doing things here and there every year. And things just started getting, you know, more and more interesting. Um, 
I can tell you this, when we talked about the royalties and the things of people um, getting ripped off over the years, that's, I think, a lot of the reason why a lot of people choose not to get managers and choose not to, um, to, to promote themselves, so to speak, because you, you tend to get, and I learned, I've learned this over the past few years, you tend to be very um, um, suspect when people come and approach you because you're not sure if they're coming genuinely because they want to help and be a part of your, you know, your music and what you do, or they're trying to get something from you. Mm-hmm. And we've, as three women, we've had to really learn the business. And, and, and again, I think uh, the ladies will agree with me that it was a different animal back in the seventies. So here we are in 2011, trying to revamp a career in a whole and totally changing industry. And I have to tell you, we're still here and we're still fighting and I'm, I'm trying to help as much as I can to, to, you know, help with, you know, with our little steps that we do. And, you know, I'm very proud. She's being, being polite. She's, she is a choreographer and she is a songwriter. She does a lot of stuff and she can sing. All right. So, so now, so now what's this rival group? Of, of Richie family, you said, oh, the other group. And I heard it with like a little little bit of a, the st- is there another group running around besides no. you? There no. used to be. What happened? Cassandra. <laughs> Back to Cassandra. Here we go. Okay, yeah. Well, the reason that we got back together and the reason I wanted to sing again is because there was a second lineup of the Richie family and I was aware of that when they first came after us after we first uh, had our uh, departure from Jacques and Henri. However, I didn't realize that they were still working. I thought they weren't working. We weren't working. As time went on, I thought the whole Richie family thing had gone uh, bye-bye. But because of social media and because of a resurgence of interest in disco, when there was a call for the Richie family. The second lineup were the ones that most people were aware of and knew how to contact. And they started doing gigs from time to time. The thing is, I didn't really realize they were working until I got on Facebook and saw what they were performing over in Holland. Uh, they had a, um, a 35 year anniversary of Studio 54 or something. And the special guest was the Richie family. And when we, when I saw that, he said, oh no, excuse my expression. Oh, hell no. These ladies are out there. I don't mind it that they sing our song, but they can't be called the Richie family, sing our music. Everybody that thinks that they're the ones that performed the music in the first place. Because my son was born after the Richie family. And I said, from now on, and of his uh, age range would all the originals he would never have the uh, the opportunity to see his mom in the the light of our contribution and who we were as the original so anyway that was a long way of saying that that was the thing that sparked me to want to get back into it and uh that's when you know i had contacted Cheryl and said oh yeah we gotta do this again at either rate once we decided to do it again 
we knew there could not be two Richie families running around. And the reason being is because it's confusing and it probably still is to a degree confusing and people wouldn't know who they're coming to see. When they see the Richie family on a marquee, well, who are they seeing? Are they seeing the originals or are they seeing the second lineup? So because people wanted to hear Brazil, they wanted to hear Best Disco, they wanted to hear Life is Music, that's who they decided they really wanted to hire. And at, at a point, we went. We lost okay. her. Lost her, but I'll finish the story for now. Yeah. We, I went to a lawyer. And we were going to sing, but we did. We had to have a name. And we weren't going to be Kazmajak. So we said we were going to um, try to pick her back up. Okay, so we went to the lawyer and we said, well, how about if we call ourselves the original Richie family? He said, no, you can't call yourself that. That's like saying you're the original Campbell Soup. So he said, but I noticed that nobody's owned this name for 10 years. And we said, oh, well, somebody does now. So we trademarked the name. Good for and you. Yeah, so we are now the Richie family for real. And we sent um, letters to the other young ladies telling them that they could no longer perform under that name. Um, so we are the Richie family. So the cease and assist went out from you to say to them. Our lawyer, yeah, our lawyer sent a letter. And they sent us one and said, no, you cease and desist. And we said, no, 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 we own the name and we're never going to let it go. Whenever it comes up for renewal, we pay our money to keep it renewed, uh, to do what we have to do to perform as the Ritchie family because we are the Ritchie family. Um, Cassandra forgot to mention that um, when, when she went on Facebook, I wasn't doing all that social media stuff then. She got, a, she got in contact or was contacted by um, a gentleman from Amsterdam, from the Netherlands, Hans, I always mess up Hans' last name. Can you fix it for me, uh, Renee? Freeze, Dupree, Dupree, Dupree. I know he's listening. Yeah, he's going to tell us. Hans was the one that told Cassandra that people still cared about whether or not we performed or not because right. we didn't even know. We didn't know anybody cared about what happened to us or anything. What are you talking we, about, girl? We all Hans. cared. No, we Nobody didn't know. We didn't know. How could we know? We had there was no social media then. There was nothing to tell us what was going on. If it hadn't been for Hans telling Cassandra, and then she finally started looking some of the stuff up. That's how she saw the program in Amsterdam and got upset. Um. So anyway, things had a way of working out, and it it, it helped us that that he started a tribute page. He has a tribute page for us and for the other. Um, the second line as well. Well, you know what? At least you got to live out the dream in the end. You know, in the end, later on, and I can say in the end, but you didn't have Richie, you didn't have, well, I was going to say Richie, you didn't have Jocks Morale putting his fist up saying, stop. You no, know, we don't. And we can, well, matter of fact, you know, um, one of the things, what, what, what really was one of the highlights of my being um, in the group. Um, is when we um, we were actually approached by James Washington out of Las Vegas, who um, had us do a project in New York with um, 
under Purple Rose Records, which is Martha Wash's uh, record label. And um, the songwriter, um, Zach. Zach Adam, who wrote from New York, mm-hmm. from New York, up in that to Long Island. Ice, Ice is the song that we came out with in 2016. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It, this is Martha Wash, Martha Wash's label. Yes, yes, yes. Wash lives right in my area. She's North Baldwin, right over here. Long Island, Long Island, right? It's right near me. That's okay. it. So, uh, yes. So they um and they brought us to New York and we um we recorded it and um all, and, and I'm very honored that 40 years after the recording of the best disco in town, Ice hit the charts for the um who was the, Top 40 in dance, in dance, club dance music. Yes. Mm-hmm. We hit number 40. Top 40 uh, in 2016. Um, also, the recipient of a couple of awards, uh, the Rhythm and Blues, National Rhythm and Blues, awarded us um, Unsung Award. I think that was 2019, right? That was just last year. Yes. Um, along with the Legends of Vinyl, Award, also in 2019, and going back to 2018, we actually went to uh, Gabichi Mare. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. There we go. She's back. Here comes our girl. She'll correct it for us. We got you back. Okay. All right. No, because all of a sudden we lost you. We're up to. I don't know. Where are we up to now? Italy. Italy now. She's talking about exactly. when you guys came in 2016 to record with Monster Wash's label Ice. Okay. Okay. And Legends of Vinyl gave you guys an award. I know that. I remember hearing about that. Congratulations. National Rhythm and Blues. Vanessa Jordan is uh, the president, CEO of and National Rhythm and Blues. And we got the unsung. As a matter of fact, Phil Hurt presented. Oh. And when he got honored, we presented him with his award, I think a year before or so, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was a year before. Like that. Um, but anyway, way we got we went to Italy in 2018. Wow, that was such a wonderful experience. And awesome. and what we found, what I found that that was amazing is that. Everybody loved disco. I mean, it wasn't just one per- one group of people. The children were there, families. I mean, it was just all t- all people were there and um, embracing us as well as the music. You guys realize something? Yeah. Europe never stopped loving dance music. Yeah. It was only America well, that went crazy. Right, America went crazy because by the time they said that Sinai Fever happened, this was the thing that was going on in the music industry. They said disco was dead already. But crazy is it, at 75, 76, they were saying this already. Didn't they have so a section like, burn the albums or something? Yeah, that was Kaminsky Park in mm-hmm. 1979. But but pre to Sinai Fever, they, you know, it was already kind of like declining somewhat. But in Europe, dance music has always been embraced as fun-loving music that people yeah. want to hear, right? Yes. Yeah. And it's yeah. not just them, not the people of our generation, but their children and their children's children. That's what's different from the way it is here. Um, their children 
know our songs just as well and could sing along with them when we were in Italy as their parents, which was surprising. That was a pretty, that was a pretty wonderful experience. Right. And then, you know, the other thing I think was, has been interesting and I speak, you know, I have to talk from my perspective because I came so late into, into the group, but, um, you know, when you asked about the other, the other ladies and all, I mean, they do have their music. Mm -hmm. um, however, you know, from what I've experienced, they did the original lineups music, but um, they also had their own that they obviously were recorded through the, what, the early 80s ladies? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. So when we came back together, when, they, when the group formed, we learned that their music as well as our own. Because so we could our show, our music. <laughs> so our shows, in, because the, 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 our fans know the body of work. They know the music. And yeah. as Cassandra was saying earlier, and some people are probably are still confused as to who did what. Well, because let me clarify something. Something that people don't even realize, and it's so obvious. I'm going to go for, to a male group named Harold Melvin and his Blue Notes. Mm -hmm. Without Teddy Pendergrass singing, there is no Harold Melvin and his Blue Notes. Because, <laughs> thank you, it's like, it doesn't sound like no matter who they put in that position, they do some great shows. I've seen the shows they do. It's not Teddy Pendergrass. Right. right. So. As, but, as, but as the, go ahead. Well, I'm sorry. Were you, then as now we go forward, if I understand Jacques Morale, he used the, probably the same studio musicians he always used on everything. Mm -hmm. Means if you sounded like them on the first album, that means everything sounds uniform. Even the ones you did, of course, that you have your own sound. And then the ones that came after are not those girls singing then. Well, they had different, different girls in the lineup. It wasn't yeah. just three. It started off with three. Somebody left. I think all together going in and out, it might have been four or five different girls that was in that lineup. So I like the fact that Cheryl and I are originals and that never wavered, never changed. And the only uh, person that we added to our lineup was Renee. Right. And if, and if, I'm assuming if Gwendolyn would have said yes, you would have, you would have, you would have had before Renee saying, of course, before you met Renee, you, she would have been right here now. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, um, given that we, we learned the songs that we saw were hits, even, uh, even by, the um other ladies uh i'll do my best i know it's very 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 well known 1882 right exactly and um they have way after you girls like way after 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 but we do that song do you an american generation we do we that sing. song because it's the body of work that the people when we, do, when we do a show what renee is saying is true when we do a show we choose the songs that we know people want to hear. And the body of work is what we choose our songs from. And we do some covers from other artists as well. Yes. Right. And we don't always use the uh, second lineup songs, but I'll do yeah. my best and kind of a mainstay. Mostly we're doing like three, maybe four songs on the show, you know, so we kind of 
stick to the ones that um, we know are the most popular and the ones that people want to hear. And, and that's what it's all about, because we're not out there just for ourselves. We're out there to give the people what they want and to give them a full show with music that sounds familiar, that they can clap their hands to, dance to, and just get their groove on. Cassandra, while you were gone, I tried to say Hans's last name. Are you able to say it, Hans de Free? Debris. 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 Mm -hmm. who, uh, who we might we want to make sure that we add met us in Italy. We had never seen him. Yes, he did. We had never seen him. We just talked her Facebook. No, it's funny about the Holland connection, because I'll tell you another thing that I remember because Earl Young spoke about when the uh burn baby burn, uh disco inferno thing exploded. Okay. Half the group wanted to go to Holland because it was a slew of gigs at that time. Mm -hmm. And he was home and he just got married to Sylvia. Okay. And he had a baby coming and his story is like this. You got a number one record that's in a movie, Saturday Night Fever going crazy records, a massive hit. And he takes a doorman's job. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He took a doorman's job. To, to, to support his family at the time while um, lead singer and the group got this contract deal and they want to go to Holland. He's like, I ain't going to Holland. I ain't going to Holland. He said just like that. And they, and the, and the band split up and that's how wow. things happen because money has a funny way of making things go around. You know, you just, it just makes all kinds of crazy. When I heard that, I was like, what do you mean you went to go work at a, as a doorman? I think it was priorities. His family came first. Yeah. And I understand that. Here's a guy that's played on 6,000 records from, from, uh, you know, uh, OJs to every major group that came out of Philly. He played pretty much on everybody's records. He probably even played on your record too. He if, did. Yeah. He did. Where is it? Oh, yo, bring him up here. <laughs> he probably played on your records. That sounds like his beat when you hear the drum beat. Oh, yeah. All right. And you go from you're the hottest thing out with the hottest group to the group says sayonara. And this is you hear this all the time. Mm -hmm. And I asked him that question. He said, the tramps was my design. I outfitted the group. We all wanted to look like one. And that was where the mistake happened. Instead of having it where they were the lead people out, people didn't realize. And to this day, there's five tramp groups going around. Sad. You got the real tramps. One of, them, one of them was in Italy with us. Yeah. I don't think it was Earl Young's tramps. It was probably. Oh, no, no, it was the other tramp band. Um, yeah. Uh, White Law. His, he's one of the singers from the original group. I can't remember his name now. But I know I saw him at the Saturday Night Fever reunion that they did in Brooklyn in 2017. And it wasn't. I was sitting there going, this is not Earl's band. I know Earl's, I know Earl Young. I know his, this, even though his singers are not the original, at least Earl, you know, is, so I can understand with you ladies feeling, Hey, this is my stuff. What are you doing? That's mm -hmm. our voices. And it's a little bit of a gray area because Brazil comes pre, then you girls blow up. You then take Brazil with you and create a whole nother part of the story. And then someone cuts the umbilical cord. Yeah. 
That's you know what we found out though, uh, Lenny, and this was the best thing in the world. You know, when you go back out there and you know that somebody else has been doing what you do under the same name, you don't know how you're going to be received. And wherever we have gone, people have told us that we always knew that it, the second lineup was not you girls. We always wondered what happened and where you were. And we're so glad that you're back. And that happened over and over again. And it's like, wow, that just blew me away. Girls, you made it. You know, you made it full, as they say, a 180. I don't want to say 360. You came in and came back. Flip, yeah. Turn back and turn back around. You came right back to it. Like a U-turn. During a time when, 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 when heritage artists, which we call ourselves, of course. Oh, yes. Of the disco era, we're are, um, moving along and coming out. Like it's like a, an explosion almost, especially after James Arena book, his book, um, First <laughs> Ladies of the reason why I know your story is very exact to what Victor Willis' story of the of the of the uh, village, people. village people's fame, him too, gone. And Jimmy Ash, uh, Jimmy Simpson becomes a singer, and he wrote those songs. He fought with them for years over those records to get his royalties. Years on that for that. So. I'm not surprised to hear the, the brother group and the sister group getting treated both like stepchildren from both groups. You guys got stepchild, like both of you, even him too. He's another talented guy. And everybody said, he's dead. He had cancer. He was a drug addict. This guy's out performing with no problem. He never had a problem. But they had to do that to hide him. Yeah, they told stories about us too. You know... They had to make an excuse for why you weren't there anymore. I mean, we'd hear from the other girls when they were on Soul Train, I think it was. They said, we all wanted to go take care of our children. So we quit. We didn't want to sing anymore. And it was like, we didn't huh? sing anymore. where did they get that from? Is that what yeah. they said? Yeah, we know it. they got the story from Jacques. That was his, his version of why we left. So the Jacques story was because you wanted to be mothers. We yes, want to yeah. and be and be homemakers, basically be homemakers. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. It was like really, yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> that was not the truth. <clears throat> no, and that's far from the truth. The truth is, you wanted more, and he didn't want to give it up. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So the, at the point was at the, at the point where he would have had to give something more up is when. They dismissed us. So, but when you signed your production contract deal, was it just a performance deal? Or was it that you guys were tied to the names of your name, your original names to the Ritchie family? How did that work? We were salaried. They owned oh, the name. Gotcha. They owned the name. And pretty much when they wanted to swap out uh, the performers, they had the opportunity and they decided that's what they wanted to do. Like I said, the relationship had gotten contentious. And, uh, you know, I think Jacques' attitude was, uh-huh, I'll show you. And in his own way, he did, you know. And we didn't think at the time that we really had other opportunities that were available to us. And we kind of, like, shrunk back and laid back. And like I said, I psychologically uh, got myself into the frame of mind of, well, since we can't do it, I don't care. I don't want to do it. 
but I was just suppressing the feeling. And I never talked about it. And many years later, when we started singing again, there's so many people said I had no idea that you ever sang. Wow, really? You know, it's like, yeah. What? I've never You never sang. What do you mean never sang? Exactly. We never told people. We just Oh, in other words, outside of this whole in the regular yeah. world, dead and nine five. Got it. They didn't know because we didn't tell them. Right. Oh, and I have to tell you, you know, we are um, some hard, hard working ladies. We rehearse all the time. Um, we, you know, we. Uh, you have are, to. You need to be really good. You have to do this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I'm just really proud of how hard we've worked, you know, to get where we are now. I mean, it's, it's amazing and, and, and it's humbling at the same time. Um, but the Ritchie family, you know, is what we call, we, we're survivors. It's just, you know, we're survivors. Mm -hmm. And um, that's something to be very proud of, mm -hmm. especially in an era where the competition is so fierce and mm -hmm. young and, you know, and meet, and meet all the, uh, what do you call it? The stereotypical criteria that comes with the industry, you know? Um, so, but the one thing we do know is that the music is not like it used to be. So in, in a lot of ways, we're, we're obligated. I feel that way anyway. You know, you're holding a torch. You really are holding a torch that unless you lived it, nobody will understand it. I tell this to everyone, unless you on the, on your lapel, I was there. Nobody knows the story. Nobody knows the story. They only know is the glitz and glamour, your champagne, oh, they're on the plane. They don't know all this behind the scenes. They have no idea. So Absolutely. you're doing a real service, uh, Lenny, by having artists come on and tell their story. Absolutely. And share it with such a wide audience. And for us, it's a pleasure to have the opportunity to kind of set the record straight because there's some misconceptions out there and just bits and pieces of information that's not quite accurate. And, um, you know, for a long time with Henri and Jacques, when the Sweethearts of Sigma had done Brazil, when we first came with Best Disco, they wanted to say that we were the ones that were on Brazil because it wasn't really a group. It was just background singers. But that wasn't accurate, you know, and I don't mind telling it like it is. Me either. So do I have it correct when I said about the Richie Rome, that Richie Rome story about Richie's, the Richie girls? Well, that is slightly wrong because... That's why I need you to correct it. Please correct it. Yeah, and that's, that's okay. Because what happened, he had girls that were able to come in and do the studio work. But then, you know, he heard us. And, of course, we became the, the group. We became the Richie family. There was nobody signed to a contract as the Richie family until Cheryl Gwendolyn and myself became the Richie family. And because he was a producer... Uh, on that second, uh, first and second album, they got permission from him, and I believe they actually paid him to use his name for the group because there was no name for the group on Brazil, except like they had to be named something. So that's how they got the name, the Richie family. So we didn't get a chance to choose our name. You know, the name was there, and we filled the bill. And everybody thought we were supposed to be family members. <laughs> because we're the they Richie still family. do. And they would say, are they your sisters? Uh, no, not really, but they are my sisters. 
But um, I think they added a T, didn't they, Cassandra, to Richie? Yep. Make it make it the Richie family because it, Richie Rome doesn't spell his name with a T in it. Um, he was a great guy. Still is. Yeah, he still is. He's a nice guy. You still uh, you still keep in touch with Richie Rome? His daughter got last year. I think he was um, ill. We sent him a birthday greeting and she said he was very appreciative and there were tears in his eyes and she sent us back a note saying that and, I, and that touched our hearts. Mm -hmm. So we haven't seen him, but the communication came through from his daughter. Oh, that's he's awesome. A, he's a lovely man. Um, with the, um, our group, we not only sing, but we also dance while we're singing, which is strenuous. Um, that was another part of our group that made our group kind of stand out from other groups at the time, I think. And Richie, um, we had Richard Moten as our choreographer who would choreograph, uh, choreograph all the songs for us in New York. And we practiced endless hours in New York, get ready for shows. Um, some of his choreography is still in our um, program, but Renee, has also added to it with her skills as a choreographer and to new songs, she's added uh, other choreography. So we still do choreography, but not as strenuously as we did when we were younger women. Oh, but we move. Uh, we we move. move. Oh yeah, we move. And we move. Girl, you cut a rug? You cut that rug? Yes. Oh, we cut the rug. <laughs> you know what to do. Choreographer. Richard did choreography for the village people. And you know how they do that sign? It's fun to say at the YMCA and the hand thing that they do to, to spell it out. Yes. Richard created that. So I just want everybody to know Richard that's Richard choreography. Let's, let's, get the, let's get that clear. Richard Moten created the YMCA dance that the village people have been yes. doing since 1978. Yes. Yes. He's still around. He's still going strong. He's still good. Another thing that another breakthrough tonight. Richard Moten, where is this man? YMCA. In fact, it was, it was horrible watching Trump do it. I was sick over it. I was like, oh, Jesus Christ. Take him off, Freddie. Yeah, do something else. <laughs> Richard Moten, the YMCA. Yes, please. They say the same thing. Cassandra, them do something else. Correct. Oh, so last most likely because did we? I think we covered a hell of a lot. But here's the most important. I know you guys were gigging, and now gigging has stopped with COVID. What's the plan? What are we doing? So you know we can all get back. What's what's the dream? Who wanted new music? Cassandra, you were about to say something. Cassandra? Okay, yeah, we were presented with some new music, uh, house music, and we were like a little bit uh, thrown off because it was like house music. What are we going to do with house music? But after listening very carefully over and over to the track, uh, Renee and myself came up with some lyrics that fit a track and we have laid down something that we like, that we're proud of, and we're looking to go before the year is out, which will be in a month and a half or so. We're looking forward to getting into the studio and uh, completing the track and putting it out there. Who's, who's the producer? Um, actually, it could be 
and when I say could be, uh, his name is uh, Rocky Jones. Oh, from Ch Chicago, DJ today. I know Rocky. Know him very he well. The one, he's the one that sent us the music. I wonder if Rocky's watching this right now. I bet she's right. Wait, Rocky, scream out from Chicago, man. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. Well, let me tell you something. Let me school you girls on something. Mm -hmm. The last couple of years, a lot of us have been doing, our house producers have been doing disco records. Mm. Because... There's been this thing in England that happened called Glitter Box and a whole lot of nights that jumped off this thing called Glitter Box and it started to play music from the 70s and they were bringing the original DJs and some of the Europeans and English and, and some of the house guys who play, you know, hybrid, blah, 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 make a long story short, a whole revolution of this 18 to 25 year old kids were singing Chic and all the big hit records. And it was just a no-brainer to start producing disco again. Yeah. So even myself, I had a record with Shirley Light's Fire, and I've been doing other records like that, too. So I'm not surprised to hear you ladies touching, because the thing about disco is you got to really know how to sing. You know, that's yeah. the trick with this. You can't be one of these little, like, you got to be full voice, and you got to be able to drop that jaw. And that's part of, that's part of, <laughs> we always joke about a little grease on the side, drop your jaw and like really sing from, you know, the girth, you know, like a power, like, like Lolita Holloway was saying, well, like how you ladies sing with, you know, the real gust in the voice. So I'm not surprised if you're asked to do disco, believe me. Because I've been doing it and I've been working with different people on it. It's it's just a different way of producing because you're doing more orchestration, but it's it's nothing wrong with it. But I'm glad to hear you're recording. And when you do record and DJ Rocky Jones. All right. That's that's really that's a name that's synonymous with one of the first house record labels, believe it or not. He's one of the first and the innovators of it. So I know him really a long time. But I gotta give you a lot of credit and you know what all of you have more the test of time and you got more mileage ahead of you that you need to get through one would hope we can and still sing that's the good part about it we all can sing is the body holding up that's all that matters you got to keep the body we're good <laughs> that's that's the most important part is, is you got the body the spirit and the mind you can do this and you'll mm -hmm. do it till the end till you can't do it no more exactly. props to all of you ladies and a lot of the fans came on today and they're like ossified i think the <laughs> biggest part to me being on the biggest biggest part was of course the story behind the scenes but the john lennon thing broke us like wow <laughs> That's it. You need, did you see that movie of, them, of him with that album, of him making the album? You may be in there. You need to see this. They got video from the recording sessions. Well, we, might, we might be. I'd love to see it. It's on Netflix. John Lennon, the Yoko John story. It's the whole White Album, the whole, that last album. Hmm. It's there. Check it out. Okay. So anyone else? I don't think we have any more questions. I think we just need to stay safe. We got a new president coming through and Lord help us. Oh, will you take the vaccinations? I've been asked. Oh, I will. 
Peanut gallery. I hear the peanut gallery from the first album, Peanut. <laughs> They're like, I don't know. Uh, I don't take the flu vaccine because I took it once and got the flu. So I, I, I'm not really into taking vaccines. Okay. Uh, if I'm made to, I don't know. The jury is still out. Um, I'm going to say, uh, you know how they say, Mikey, Mikey, Mikey will try. Mikey tries anything. So let I'm gonna let, I'm gonna, wait, wait, let, let me clarify. Let me ask the question again. All right. Now, because this has been asked about me too, because I got a DJ around the world as well. Right. So to get on a flight, it's going to get to a point where you got to go like this. And show this immunity. Hi, I got my my shot. Meaning you have to go get it to get to go fly. Now, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do, ladies? Come on now. I already gave my answer. You, I know your answer. I'm talking the other two. You're in. You're in it to win it. I hear you. If if, if that be the case, I would do it. I would consider it the same thing as if I had to take the malaria. Okay. okay. And on that note, thank you, ladies. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you. I don't know if it's going to be that happy because we're under a very strict family rule this year. Ten and under. It's sad. Yeah. <laughs> and and get better. Christmas and Kwanzaa and all whatever, Passover, whatever everybody celebrates. That's going to be another thing. You can't have anything either. And it's going to be a dark winter, but we shall overcome. Hello. We shall overcome. And um, the one thing I wanted to tell you is that the other thing, other than just um, uh, looking at new music, you know, we uh, have a song called Quiet Village. I that know. when it was recorded, did it, it didn't it had it didn't have verses. Um, we're hoping in the future to go back in to put the verses in that we've we've written that um, Renee wrote. Yeah, Renee wrote the Renee that, wrote. <laughs> Right. Well, but it's oh, we have this way. Excuse me. We work in French. We, oh, you are. We, <laughs> we wrote, no, Renee wrote those. No, words. I know. I know. Renee wrote the lyric. Okay. So she well, wanted what it was. It was, you know, during that time, you know, the music, like you said, it was dance music. So there was a lot of music. And at, now as, as, um, heritage artists, we can't move the whole entire time that the music, you know, is going. So, you know, some lyrics came to me. I don't know. Somehow they came and I brought I've seen that. I would love to touch that record. See, that was something, something I would touch. I would do Quiet Village and make now, it like the original record from 77. I would make right. it sound exactly, but just beefed up for now, but have that orchestration. Because that yeah, record, was two parts. Two it, parts that um, had some work. The original had some lyrics in it, but they were mostly like um, a chorus kind of a thing. Right. But they right. wrote actual, actual verses, verses for the song that um, also. Italy. I, I don't know of anything. It might the Italy footage, which is not the best footage, but it it does. I think Quiet Village might be on there where the, where the the lyrics are being sung. You can see it there. But um, that would be something that I think we might try and and do. Okay, because it's a it's like you said, it's a really nice song. I That's love it. Beautiful because. song. I love that. Very salsa. You know what about that song is? It's got that salsa orchestra type. He was going at that salsa. As that thing was blowing up, I knew you could tell what they were looking at. They knew yeah. salsa orchestra was blowing up. They were trying to grab that Philly sound. Right. And implement so, it you ladies. You could tell. So the music, when it goes, there are lyrics there now. 
Right, because you would think that's like that would be something you hear Vince Montana would have done. Exactly. Right? Am I wrong? Is that something like Vince would have done, right? Very much has that flavor of Vince Montana. And, you know, before we go, I just want to give a shout out to Troy Daniel and Wardell Piper. Troy Daniels, Wardell Piper, yes. To uh, set this up for us. Well, funny enough, Wardell and Troy came to me to remix Wardell's single before COVID that's been put on pause. And then we got into the conversation. I was starting True House Stories. Then the thing was, he's, I said, who else you look after in Philly? And he says, oh, I look after um, the, the, the ladies. I'm like, which ladies? I'm thinking, I'm thinking sweethearts of, of, uh, of Sigma. He says, no, the Richie family. I went, what? I, and I said, they're around? Just like that. He says, yeah. Oh, I'm like, they're around. Meaning, are they around? Can I get, can we get? He said, let me call them. Just like that. Let me call them. He called me 10 minutes later. He said, the ladies would love to do it. And I'm like, now, so I must have to thank Troy because he's the one that bridged me to you. Yes. Good on him. And Thanks, this is worth you. And you know what but else, ladies, we didn't, we, didn't, we didn't mention the, um, the show we did, the last performance, our very oh. last oh. performance was, in, was with Michael... Entertainment. Mystery excitement. Ah, you know. Michael Mr. Excitement. What's his last name? Michael Jacobs, Mr. Excitement. Michael Jacobs. Mr. Excitement. Michael Jacobs. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> Michael Jacobs. He did a show, had a show in the was it in the Bronx? What was it? It was. He in the Bronx? Uh-huh. And um we, oh my god, it was a lot of people on that show. We had uh help me out ladies. Who was on there? DC Tennyson, Tavares. Um, was D Train on that show? No, D Train wasn't. Okay. On. Sharon Brown. Sharon Brown, specialized in love. He's another great yeah. singer. Uh oh man, it was a bunch of um a lot of people. It was a lot of people. A lot and of you, people. And very importantly, you ladies. Yeah. We were exactly. there and it was a really, really good show. And Michael really was a wonderful guy. Took took good care of us. Um, and that is, if we were to have a lasting memory, <laughs> that's a wonderful lasting memory to have because that was a heck of a Last show. Memory. Now, can I can I say this to you, ladies? I can see myself holding that 20th Century Fox, you know, um, Brazil, forty five. Uh huh. And if somebody would have told me and this is nineteen seventy five, seventy six, whatever that was, around seventy five, somebody would have said to me, "I'd be sitting with you, ladies." Now, I would never have believed it. I swear to God, in a good way. Like you know, and I and I always say this: you you never know what you're gonna do in your life, and you never know a dream is gonna come true. And it's um, unbelievable. Believe me, a lot of my friends right now are sitting, going, "Holy smoke, he's got them." And they're here. They're for real. These are the real girls, not the imposter group. This is the real group. All right, let's get it right. They mentioned who the original people were, and they said, "No, we took it from this point, and we made the legacy." Moment of moment of truth. That's it. Moment of truth. I'm sorry. I, that That's was the other. Group. Helpless, yeah. Moment of truth. Helpless, helplessly. I wanna do if it ever and, be made. Right? Got bo- <laughs> Jimmy Bohorn. Jimmy. It's a really great lineup. Jimmy Bohorn. Jimmy Bohorn. That's another record. Let me tell you that you play and the um, crowd goes crazy when they hit Spank. Yeah, wait. Fonda, Fonda Ray. 
over like a fat rat, find the <laughs> ring. Yes, find Franz Jolie. There we go, Franz Jolie. To me. Franz Jolie was on there. Heart uh, to break your heart. There we go. Uh -huh. They're all writing hearts to you. Yes, heart to break Canadian artist. Yes, very good. Now, Michael's on here. Michael, I just saw Michael. Hey, Michael. <laughs> there you Michael, go. Excitement, Michael. Yes, he's on. Hey. So just so you know, this is documented. This will be on YouTube. This will be podcasted. And this video will be up. You could show people this for years to come and make sure they realize this is real. This is the true story. The this true house story. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Thank you so much. Thank you.